Hi, I'm Candace Michelle, and this is Our Community. Back with me today is Diana Cooper, Executive Director of Brookings Core Response. How are you doing, Diana? I'm doing good. I'm just it's uh, so good to see your face. face. I know. <laughs> it's it's been a good week, and this is a beautiful weekend. So oh, it's I hope so people are getting warm out. It's there. very warm out there. I was out. Yes. Matt and I actually, my dad. <laughs> funny thing, my dad wanted to go shooting today and you know i'm not much shooting a, like gun shooting yeah, like gun, gun shooting okay all right you know because i'm okay. such a big guns person no you are, um, are you? no I, it's been a while how did that get by me yeah right no i but my dad is he's he used to actually because he owned a woodworking shop he when he got older and he couldn't do the cabinets anymore he retired from that, but he would still make guns and he would make rifle stocks mm. and beautiful, beautiful oh, stuff. Okay. I mean, just the most beautiful guns I've ever seen. So, right. And I know that's kind of funny saying that, but it's true. <laughs> and mm-hmm. usually they it, were rifles, you know? Right. And so I remember him, he'd get it all, you know, get everything all fixed up and take it outside and take pictures of them and whatnot. But anyway, so we, we went up shooting today and it's been long, probably over 10 years since I've shot a gun. And uh, so it was me and Matt and my dad. And we only went a few miles up into the hills. But the second we left town, it just immediately hit sun and warmth. And it was like, Ooh. felt like it was like 75 degrees first thing. But it was foggy in town. And, and you know, 75 degrees doesn't sound warm, particularly. Oh, it's just when but, the sun's hitting right on you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so exactly. it was very, we, we weren't up long because it actually was very hot. But, uh. So my, my experience with a gun has been very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my dad tried to teach me when we'd, we'd go over to my grandmother's farm and mm-hmm. He would try to teach me and my brother. My brother took to it, you know, just fine. But for me, A, it was way too loud. (laughs) B, it was way too loud. (laughs) C, it was way too loud. You know, it was just way too loud. Yeah, it was very loud. I don't want that noise right in my ear. Well, I had on. It was nothing nice. I had on ear, you know, the ear, um, what do you, the protectors, you know, because. Well, right. even growing up in the shop, my dad always had, you know, six, seven, eight of those uh, ear muff protectors around because he'd run the saws and he'd run other tools. Of and course. so, you know, that I wear those. I think, you know, maybe not everybody wears those when they're up shooting or doing whatever. But I, right. my dad always taught me to wear protective gear when you're using, um, whether you're using guns or you're using saws or you're using a sander, you know, oh, wear the protective that's gear. That's great. So, yeah, that's it was great. And it, yeah. I, I'm more of a natural with the gun, which is kind of strange. But um, I know Matt and I, uh, we we were hitting some targets and uh, I've got a pretty good shot rate. So I think I'd, I think I could hold my own, you know. Good for you. Yeah. I'll, I'll call you when the yeah. apocalypse happens. <laughs> if it happens, okay? I've got a 60% <laughs> shot rate. I think I can handle my own. There we go. And I've got food. So good. you come to my house good. and good. protect me and the food. Matt will play music. It'll be fine. <laughs> So how, how's your long COVID doing? It's, you know, I'm still working on, I I think last week I was kind of losing some weight. I haven't lost any more, but I can't seem to kind of get back on track there. So I think um, actually what happens is when I'm, this is what my assumption is 
uh, right now is that when I'm having pain, I'm not feeling hungry because I'm already having a hard time feeling mm-hmm. hungry. So if I'm in any right. kind of pain, then it, I don't get hungry and then I'm not eating and I'm not recognizing it. So for me right now is managing the pain. And a lot of that is like, you know, doing natural exercises and things, stretching. And I've been trying to go for little walks and, um, I don't, I don't usually take medication. So, some ibuprofen occasionally. Is it your joints that are hurting? Uh, is that my where, joints. where the pain is? Yeah, my joints are the most of it and muscles, you mm-hmm. know, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. It's right. kind of strange. I was talking to a, a friend yesterday and I hadn't seen her in quite a while. And she got COVID last year this time and told me that she got really sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that about three weeks after COVID, she started having what seemed like unrelated internal issues mm-hmm. that ended up requiring a couple of surgeries. Oh, wow. I know, right? And, you know, what we know about COVID is that the damage it does to your body can seem unrelated, mm-hmm. but the virus actually can attack almost anything from muscles and joints to your heart, mm-hmm. to your brain. I mean, the experts are also saying that the more often you contract COVID or the more severe your case, the more likely you are to develop long lasting effects, mm-hmm. which is scary and and should be a cautionary tale for those who are, you know, just kind of relying on their own antibodies because you may not get really sick each yeah. time you get it, but you're increasing your chances yeah, of quite, getting a long, yeah. It's not quite like some other diseases where if you get it and then you have antibodies and then, mm-hmm. you know, you're not likely to get it again, or if you get it again, it won't be as severe because every, this is just different. I mean, it's not unique in and of itself we have other diseases that you can contract multiple times and it can cause issues that are you know pretty extreme but this one is just such a highly contagious disease and so that's why it's it's a little bit different than you know some of them the um i don't know higher acuity diseases but um yeah i i think that well you know for myself i've had it twice and the first time was pretty awful left me with some long covid the second time that just compounded everything and it's sort of, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a lot worse right now. And it also affects you later on. And so there are some symptoms that didn't start coming up until weeks or months later. And so I wasn't really understanding that it was related to long COVID and it's just kind of a mess until we get a lot more science out there and a lot more studies done. Exactly. Exactly. Cause there, it, we're still, this virus is actually still fairly new. Yeah. Um, you know, it hasn't been around three years yet. Yeah. So. We don't know all of its patterns mm. and its behaviors, no. and we don't know how worse it can get or how. No. Yeah. And given that it keeps freaking mutating, mm. right? <laughs> so, you know, now we've got BA5 out there that evidently is, uh, you know, topping the the top 10. Mm-hmm. Um and it's much more contagious, much more. The symptoms don't seem to be really bad, but you you know you're sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's you know if you 
get it and then get it again, you're opening yourself up to the dangers of long COVID. Mm. Um, and the people who are dying, still dying, and I think I read the figure the other day that 350 Americans are dying every day still mm. from this, from COVID. And those of us who are dying are the ones who are older and have either a compromised immune system or some other health issue. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's really important to remember that COVID, we may be done with, the co with COVID. I mean, we may be really sick of it mm -hmm. and done. But COVID's not done with us yet. I mean, a, a good friend of mine just got it last week. And, you know, the case numbers are exploding. And with the prevalence of home testing, you know, we're not even getting close to an accurate count. Mm -hmm. Not even close. Yeah, I think we just have no. to assume that it's, I mean, it's out there and that it's highly, we're highly susceptible to catching it and different yep. variations yep. of it. And so... I know there have been um, a lot of times recently where, well, especially going into like stores and crowded places where, you know, mm -hmm. I will still wear my mask, although it's, you know, I don't wear it as much as probably some others do right now. Um, I try not to go into <laughs> crowded spaces. Right. Um, no, I know. So, yeah, it's. And the thing about BA5 is that it has it's managed to get around the antibodies. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that's that's why BA5 is so dangerous is because, you know, the, the, the symptoms might not be as severe, but it's getting around your antibodies. It's getting around mm -hmm. your protection. And, and that's never good. I mean, that's just, that's never a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I also read a report um, that says polio is on the rise. Yeah, and this is due to fact due to folks not getting their kids vaccinated. Right, which to me is extremely worrisome. I remember when I was a kid, and admittedly, that was you know twenty five million years ago. <laughs> but but polio was rampant. Yeah, and I I remember getting that polio vaccine. I remember seeing those iron lungs mm -hmm. with those kids in them. And it's, so why aren't kids getting vaccinated? What What is up, Diana? Well, you know, and I've been uh, pretty open about this on previous interviews that, you know, I grew up here and I, when we had our kids, we chose, actually, when we had our kids, Ada got her first couple of rounds of vaccines. And both times, you know, she ended up getting very sick. She had actually got uh, flown over to Medford, life lighted over there um, when she was only a few days old. And we had a lot of complications. And while I, while I thought that some of those were related to the vaccines early on, I, and I tried talking to different um, providers about it. And they were, it was very difficult to talk to providers because a lot of the idea was, well, just do it, just get them vaccinated. And, and if you want to even ask questions, you are considered anti-vax. And I know that a, a lot of parents feel that way now. Um, mm -hmm. And so what happened here was, you know, we did, we ended up um, trying to get a, a lot of answers 
And we were mm-hmm. actually excluded from different pediatric offices. And so for us as a family, that meant- Because you wanted some answers? Because, That's... Yeah, because we wanted answers. Wow. And maybe we, okay. maybe we were coming about it the wrong way. I'm not really sure. But mm-hmm. for us, mm-hmm. what that after the second or third time, what it felt like was, well, you know, we don't want to- um, we don't want to get the kids all their vaccines because we don't we don't necessarily trust that this is happening and also nobody's talking right. to us about this. Right. So right. that and that happens to a lot of families and I think that you know I've talked about this too providers that um, maybe aren't aware of this I wish that they were a little more open minded to sit and talk to parents who have concerns because we probably would have still gotten the kids their other vaccines. Um, mm-hmm. But we just didn't have enough information and everything we heard was very scary. So mm-hmm. so we ended up not um, vaccinating the boys at all. And then come COVID, you know, we're we're very intelligent people. We're realistic. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. a very logical person and I do believe in science. So when this came around, I had a unique opportunity to be, you know, front and center as a community health worker. Um this was an interesting topic for me as a community health worker raised in a conservative area, because as a community health worker, you're a part of public health. And so you're close to, I mean, had the pandemic not come around, I never would have been close to the issues of vaccines myself, right? because I was more focused on issues of poverty and aging and things like that and health. So, um, you know, having this come around and being, around St. Timothy's and then, you know, then bringing in nurses and us bringing in, you know, working with OHA. I, I got to have these conversations that I had tried having when my kids were younger and, you know, things were explained to me about the efficacy and the safety of vaccines now versus 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and to be honest, like, you know, Matt and I have reconsidered our, our stance on some of the vaccines um, mm-hmm. and recently we just started talking about maybe wor- working out a schedule to catch the kids up on, you know, the, those vaccines that we do have information about and those vaccines that we do feel safe about. And this is a difficult mm-hmm. conversation. I mean, honestly, it's, it's hard to be in this spot where I'm like, yeah, we've never done it, but this is something that we should, we should be looking into and not just that, but we should be doing. So, um, we we were just talking about that recently about okay like how are we going to do this and how are we going to set the kids up and get them some of these vaccines and there is no pediatrician in curry county um since the pandemic yeah so what and this isn't news to a lot of parents we We have thousands of Mm -hmm. kids in this county there's no pediatrician there are a lot of kids um and so we used to have a pediatrician before the pandemic started, you know, we moved back here in mid 2019, and the kids had an, a really great pedi- pediatric office over in Medford, and so we kind of delayed switching them. Honestly, it's a big sure, hassle. Sure. I've got four kids, so yeah. once we finally found, uh, you know, that pediatrician, and then for my daughter, she didn't, she doesn't see a pediatrician. We just found her a regular provider. And mm-hmm. we had to, you know, schedule the appointments, make sure the insurance was switched over. We had to, these were scheduled out pretty far. And then we had to arrange, you know, taking them out of school. Mind you, this was before COVID. So I had to arrange taking them out of school. It actually happened January of 2020. 
That's when we got right them before all COVID. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like <laughs> we had been working on this for like three months, getting them into the pediatric <sighs> office and we got them all their appointments. I had to take two on one day, one on another day, one had to have labs. And so then we get everybody set up and then COVID hit. And um, it was really, th- I know this is not unique to our family, but what happened was my husband's provider passed away, not from COVID, but mm. he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, my provider, who was also my daughter's provider, moved away. And the pediatrician for the boys uh, moved away as well and quit the practice. And so our entire family was found at the beginning of COVID with no providers. Oh, my. And so, um, so for it, that's that's incredible. It, okay. It, that's, that's just incredible. What are the odds? Um, yeah. Apparently wow. pretty good. So we've. Yeah. Slowly... Cause yours is not the only story. No, that I've heard gosh, about it. no. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've slowly worked on getting providers back for all of us, although it's been mm. very difficult through the pandemic to, to get a new patient appointment and other providers have come and gone. So, so it's, what's interesting about this is, you know, we're talking about polio coming back and, you know, let's say, let's say it did come back with a force and it's sweeping through Brookings, you know, families like myself who are like, oh, you know what, we should probably go get, even if it's just that one vaccine, where Mm -hmm. are you going to get it? And I'm not saying we won't find places because guaranteed, you know, St. Timothy's, a coalition, the food bank, us, whoever else coast, we'll do whatever it takes to make sure that we get our fair share for Curry County. But um, just- But the providers who are here, right. the providers are the ones that are supposed to- Right, you know, just on a, give on a you the, over, overview of this, yes. Yeah. Uh, good luck getting in to see someone in a timely manner. And there is no pediatrician. So there are doctors that will see kids though. So, you know, we do have it just, it, another it just provider. It seems- almost beyond belief Mm. that something that was eradicated, you know, polio, I mean, that we had that beat and it's, it's coming back. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, really, it it kind of feels like, you know, Roe v. Wade, right? Oh Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. 50 years ago, we handled it. And now we got to go back out in the street. I mean, it's just, I'm not sure. Like, you know, a hundred, 200 years from now, they'll have some amazing studies come out of all of this and they'll learn so much from our mistakes. I know they'll look back and say, what on earth were they yeah, thinking? They'll, you what know, was the matter with those Because people? we look back at like the 17 and 1800s and we're I like, know. gosh, they were so primitive back then, I you know? know, and that's not that long ago. I think in 200 years, they're going to be thinking that about us. Yeah, I know. I mm-hmm. know. Yeah, it's the whole provider thing is just is just scary, you know. Right. I mean, you e- even if you have a, a provider that you're not thrilled with, um, you kind of keep them right. because you're not really sure what would happen. Yeah, <laughs> because, well, you'd be without you know, is what would happen. You'd be without is what would happen, right? Exactly, and it's not, you know, that's not something you, that we. You'd be coming to see us to help figure out how to get into a doctor. <laughs> Diana, help me. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's pretty, it's pretty bad. But seriously, you know, when we're talking about stuff like polio, I mean, come on. We've got it. We gotta 
we got to nip this in the bud. You know, we can't, we can't do this again. That's can we? That's also um, another. <laughs> I'm like one more little cog to throw in there. We, um, even though we do have providers that are able to see kids, not many providers' offices carry vaccines, and and a lot, you know, not just that, but vaccines for children because that's different than adult vaccines. Mm-hmm. So that's it's right. actually, um, you know, even if you find a provider, that's no guarantee that they actually carry, ch- you know, children's vaccines. So. Well, I guess we need to start making, you know, making a little bit of noise. Uh, I know OHA, Oregon Health Authority, is kind of the as high as it goes in the state. And I, I guess we just need to, you know, make some noise. I mean, as always, Curry County is underrepresented and underfunded and under-resourced. And I mean, basically, we're, we're that Southwest pocket that people forget well, we about. have we have the things like we have the the resources there's just a few missing pieces that <laughs> connect it a to doctor <laughs> yeah well yeah just a few missing well pieces, the office is there no i understand right yeah yeah so. exactly exactly mm-hmm. but but those pieces that are missing are they're pretty they critical. are they are just you know in the same way that we've got a lot of resources here but we don't have the housing piece to support it. Right. That's it's kind of the same with all of what we have is there's this, there's right. these few little pieces that are missing that we're all sort of hoping for and trying to build. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I thought that we could also try to answer some more questions uh, that have come up about project turnkey. Yeah. I speaking like of housing. Talking about that. Yeah. Right. Speaking of housing. <laughs> um, so what what kind of support are you getting for yeah. this project? Um, well, I I mean, me personally, I've had a lot of people that have stopped, and I, I often have people that want to support Project Turn Here, want to support us because they hear about it, and they have questions because they want to have better information when they're talking to, like, friends or family or other community members. Um, I've actually, I've also answered a lot of questions from Councillor Schreiber and I know Mary Pat has as well. That's our city Councillor Schreiber. And it sounds like he wants to support solutions, but is having a hard time kind of grasping the project. And I think most people are generally able to understand, uh, though, and they're kind of, their questions are related to what kinds of programs we're going to be bringing into the community, which I know we're going to get into later, but we have... Yeah. So tell me, yeah, let's let's tell the people what Project Turnkey is right. and then we'll go into So it. Yeah. Project Turnkey is the um the state has allocated actually this is comes from the federal government, but the states have allocated mm-hmm. certain amounts of money towards um projects to increase available units, living units, housing, shelter, whatever. And mm-hmm. um and that could be long-term supportive housing, transitional housing. And the intention is to um, purchase motels or hotels or even vacant apartments or things like that, where it's something that's already there. It's, um, it's not being used as this type of housing. Mm -hmm. And so we're Mm -hmm. able to not deplete any other, you know, we're not taking units that are already being used for housing and then just fixing them up and using them again. It's like actually contributing to our housing units. 
And it's kind of without a, actually having to build, right? Because the building is just, you know, that's right. what keeps getting. The yeah, that's where out. you know, and not and building is a part of this, but Project Turnkey is sort of like the state's way of saying, hey, um, you know, definitely time to build, definitely time to start really digging into housing from various reasons, you know, and mm-hmm. but. Here is a temporary solution. It came up because of COVID and really has expanded, right. you know, from the wild wildfires and um, yep. other kind of travesties with, that we've had around the state and the, the country. And so this yep. money was allocated to just just increase units of housing, and that's as simple as it is. Which is great. And yep. you know, yep. Mary Pat. So she's the director of Oasis. For those who don't know, Oasis is the domestic violence shelter in um, Gold Beach. They've been operating for over 30 years. And so Mary Pat has taken Project Turnkey on as the primary, and then we would be Mm -hmm. providing support for that. So Mm -hmm. we've been in communication, you know, with the city and the county and with agencies and, and individual community members, a lot of community members. We have 12 letters of support, I think, that have already been sent off to Oregon Community Foundation. This is from individuals, organizations, businesses, churches, former leadership, uh, Mm -hmm. donors, and other funders. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of really good support that we have for the project. And a lot of people have, like I said, a lot of people have come out and asked a lot of questions. And I think for the most part, people are able to understand what we're kind of saying and, and grasping it. And so that's been really positive. It's good to know that there that there is that kind of support because it's it's so easy to have that kind of knee jerk reaction, you know, not in my backyard. Yeah, um, and we see that too. But the, the reality, mm-hmm. yeah, but the reality is that that the people are here. These are our community members who are already here. <laughs> Can't we just put a roof over their heads? <laughs> How hard is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, it's been very hard for our area. And so, um, and I think that the ones that are saying, you know, not in my backyard, or or really just the ones that are having a hard time kind of grasping the terminology. And I know it's not just Councilor Schreiber, there are, there are other people who have talked to us who are having a hard time with what we're saying and understanding what we're saying, because really it has a lot to do with just not having that lived experience and not having that work experience and not being, um, you know, not being a part of this system for Mm -hmm. a while or having experience with these systems. And so, you know, but that's why I always tell people that we do need to lean on the experts in this situation. So. And the type of housing this is, this is, Transitional this housing? This is transitional housing. And the intent... As opposed to... Uh, there, so there's long-term supportive housing, which eventually we may turn this into. Um, there's emergency shelter, which I know some projects have been used for emergency shelter. And there's actually a couple that are dual um, for COVID and the, the fire relief victims that is more of an mm-hmm. emergency shelter because... Um, they just need, there was such an overwhelming need. They needed to get them off the street right now. Right. right. And so the idea for us is that we w- sort of needed a middle ground. Um, we do need long-term supportive housing, but we also need, um, while I think that we 
in a sense, we could use emergency shelter because we have people who, you know, I've mentioned a few veterans and seniors with um, dementia that we have or physical ailments Mm -hmm. that require immediate shelter. We've generally been able to, well, I I mean, I say this lightly, We've, we've generally been able to navigate getting these people into either a motel or in some cases their vehicle and kind of trying to stabilize them like that. That's not ideal, but we have more ways of managing the um, few high acuity cases, I guess, than sort of these these this gap, which is what we wanted to address. And that is people who are, um, you know, the intent of this project is to provide transitional housing for people who are engaged in services and just missing the housing component. So we provide case management. Um, I've heard that we don't have case management here in Brookings. I actually heard that from a county employee. (laughs) Um, That is not true. Advanced Health, All Care Health, ADAPT, ourselves, you know, the Food Bank, the Coalition, Oasis, DHS. I mean, I could go hospice. um, Wow. Coast Community Health. There's various other agencies that can and do provide case management. And so we all agree um, there's been nobody inside these systems that I've talked to that doesn't agree that success is the success of case management is often tied to housing availability. So we mm-hmm. all have people that are ready to rent. They're ready to be moved into stable housing. We just don't have the units. And so these will be individual units that are self-contained. They'll have kitchens, bathrooms, bedrooms, storage, you know, just other amenities that you'd find in a small apartment. And Mm-hmm. This is um, this is something that our resources uh, will be able to use. Our local resources will will be able to use to help increase the success rate of the clients that they serve. And and the clients are already in the system, as it were. They're 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 already getting help from various components, right? And so this is just giving them that that housing component that right yeah that all of us you know feel like i mean seriously if you didn't have a place to live yeah that makes you crazy yeah I mean, this does you know like i said there there's everybody every agency that i work with you know which is a lot um every agency that i work with has people that are you know ready to be moved into housing for one mm-hmm. reason or another and mm-hmm. um this will provide sort of that that step and though you know they're already engaged in services or probably most services you know they're probably engaged in Mm -hmm. multiple different types of services and um so i mean we do so many uh team meetings with agencies and with individual um people that we're able to understand like you know we're able to coordinate these services already so this is the missing piece Excellent. So you're talking about uh, having it be in a in a hotel motel mm-hmm. on uh, Chetco Avenue, mm-hmm. 101. Um, what are the benefits of having this transitional housing mm-hmm. there? Yeah. The so we were actually able to gain perspective on what it would be like to case manage people in this location over the course of about nine months. We kind of had an opportunity. 
we originally began using some motel rooms um, in that area for isolation and quarantine when Delta came around. And that was July and August of 20. Yeah, right. It was, I remember that. We were running around like crazy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And so that was, we were, you know, still, still at St. Timothy's and we were Uh working with a lot, the food bank, the coalition and whatnot, Mm -hmm. you know, then it expanded to vaccine side effects. And then we had a veteran who needed housing to keep him Mm -hmm. out of the hospital. So we call this hospital decompression when a hospital is holding someone because they're otherwise safe to discharge, but unable to maintain their health due to lack of permanent housing. So, um, cause they would decline immediately. So the hospitals need the room, uh, because we were in the middle of COVID. So the state provided funding for this and we had several other high risk individuals, mainly seniors, um, that were able to, we were able to house for many months until they were properly assessed. And most were moved into supportive housing, housing, such as assisted living, um, adult foster care, or more like long-term transitional solutions, which those were in other communities usually. So, but, but mm -hmm. to be perfectly clear here, to be absolutely crystal clear, you have in essence been using this same location or similar Mm -hmm. location for a period of eight or nine months. Mm -hmm. And nobody knew it was happening. No, there was no, um, there were two police contacts. One of those uh, came from us. And that was just in ensuring uh, that we were able to, you know, handle the situation appropriately. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't, you know, there was no big issue that came up that led to a 911 call. And the other police contact was when they were dropping someone off. Um, from, I believe that had been discharged from the jail, uh, and needed a room for isolation and quarantine. So we did have a few police contacts, but in, in total, there were over, well, in total, there were 81 families that I counted who were transit or who who were housed. I'm sorry, from August, 2021 to April, 2022. So 81, um, individual families. Wow. And sometimes that I mean, was that's just one person, but, you know, sometimes it was a couple of kids and a mom or, um, you know, there, I think there was an instance where there were a couple of single adults that we housed, but a lot of that was individual people. And the reality is that if those people had not been housed, especially that, that was a rough winter, as I recall. Yes. Um, there, people would have died on the street. There are a few of those individuals that um, were very in very poor health. One of them had, mm-hmm. did have dementia, and one had a learning disability and was really struggling with being abused. Um, had mm. actually been uh, assaulted by a, a community member that we have here because um, because of their developmental disability, and so mm. that part of housing them was. Uh, well, I mean, housing everybody there was about their safety. It was about their their right. health and safety. So, you know, we yeah. and there was no blowback, and there was no blowback from the community because the community didn't know. No, and so nobody was up in arms, right? And on truly, when you know Project Turnkey comes about, it with projects like these. I mean, this is how it goes: is there's a lot of commotion. But once the project's in place, you know, within a few weeks or a month, 
everything kind of dies down. There might be a few people who continue to um, just because of their own personal uh, opinions or their personalities who will, you know, continue on. But typically I think communities see the positives pretty quickly and, um, or there's just, it's just fairly quiet. Usually I know that there's always exceptions, but these outliers are not the standard and not the norm and we should not make them the norm. Um, So we saw uh, for this location, we saw a lot of positives. People were able to Mm -hmm. get to the store on their own if they were physically capable of doing so, you know, it was close Mm -hmm. to the laundromat, but again, we'll have coin operated laundry facilities. So that'll be, um, but it, it also provide, you know, transportation access. It's not far from the ER and other services like DHS, exactly. all care, right. whatnot. Right. So, and how will all of the agencies that are involved work to keep people safe? Yeah, that's that's a good question and one that was brought up a few times. The uh-huh. first step in keeping people safe is protecting their rights, protecting their information and combating misinformation about, you know, domestic violence, trauma, poverty, and all the other factors that lead to homelessness. So Mm -hmm. at the town hall, there were some people asking about uh, the safety of survivors. And there were others asking about screening policies and details about who will be let in and who will not. And these Mm -hmm. two things are synonymous, meaning Sharing every little detail about a program can actually lead to a loss of safety and confidentiality for the people in the program. Hmm. So, for instance, if a screening criteria was that a person has to have HIV AIDS or hep C if they wanted to go into a particular shelter, and which that's not our screening policy, but let's say that that was a screening policy. Um, and I'm sure there are shelters specifically for this. So every time you drive by and see someone, you would know that they have HIV AIDS or hep C. So we would be breaking confidentiality just by acknowledging that screening criteria. It's the same reason why your therapist doesn't come up to you and Fred Meyer and start asking about your day. You know, like anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, I can see by the look in your eyes, you need some more right. Zoloft. We should Stop meet. by my office. <laughs> and, and that's anyone that they're with, you know, their husband, their children, mm-hmm. their friends mm-hmm. will naturally assume you're a patient. Um, It's actually a code of conduct for social workers. It's Ah. an ethical um, thing that's brought up in, I know it was brought up multiple times in my education and it's brought up a lot for people in this field of work. You know, it's not the same for a doctor, but similar, like stating someone Mm -hmm. is a patient doesn't give you details about their personal health, though it's still typically considered not good practice. But right. when it comes to specific groups, we're charged with taking extra precautions. You know, mm-hmm. and incidentally, this is actually because of the behavior that we saw at the town hall, as mm-hmm. we know that people seeking care for mental health, addictions, certain diseases that are often wrongly associated with lifestyle choices and uh, other taboo issues, they're often shamed, they're treated poorly, and they're even put in danger because of their association with whatever group they belong to. So, you know, we are, we are taking confidentiality very seriously. And that includes not sharing every little detail that I think people want to know more out of curiosity rather than actual safety measures. Because this, mm-hmm. you know, if, if it was them, needing this service, they would want us to protect their safety as well. And they're, you know, the reason why there's so much security and confidentiality around mental health and addictions and things like that, 
that's because these are often associated with, um, you know, like poor life choices and Mm -hmm. um, just sort of negative connotation. And so it creates a, a huge safety issue for people accessing the services. So we can't talk about, we don't, we can't talk about mental health, not because um, we don't want to, and we don't want to share this, you know, we don't want to share information about things that we're doing, but because people like um, some of the things that we heard in the town hall create actual safety concerns for people who experience mental health and they don't want people to know they have mental health issues. No, of course. So, um, but you know, we also are going to have security and staffing because uh, this is the best way to ensure safety for the residents of the project. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. The the one woman at the town hall who made some kind of a comment about a drive by shooting mm-hmm. that that just made my jaw drop. Yeah, I think. Well, you know, certainly we weren't thinking about a drive by shooting until that was said. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the comment was made in reference to you know if there are people who are there who are survivors of domestic violence that if they're, you know, abuser or offender knew that they were there, they might drive by mm-hmm. and do a shooting. I think that it was in that right. context. That, that context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, that the same can be said for it. Usually women or people who leave domestic violence shelters, if they don't have a safe to go safe place to go back to, they go back to where people know where they are. And so it's not creating any additional safety concerns than it would anywhere else. But, but also people aren't coming in, in crisis. So that's the big, they've already been through the the shelter in gold beach. And right. That's the takeaway is that, Mm -hmm. um, I think there's, there was a misconception that people are coming in in crisis from from any side, whether it's domestic violence, trauma, homelessness, which a lot of those right. things are pretty synonymous anyway. But um, you know, there's a vision of people waiting outside the gate to get in and um, being in danger and trying to get in, and that's not at all what's going to happen. That's not at all the process, mm-hmm. or um, just what is possible with this project. So people won't be coming in, in crisis like that. And, um, you know, safety plans and all of those things will be in place already. So this is what's interesting Mm -hmm. to me is that there, there seems to be, um, this faction, I guess, um, that they just want to get upset. You know, it's, it's, it's not like they, they actually even want answers to the questions. They just want to be upset. And, you know, there's not much you can do about people who have determined that that is their goal, to be upset. Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, we've got professionals who are working this. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know that personally people want to be upset. I think that they feel um, a sense of fear that, I mean, even though I I can say that that's not founded, um, it's pretty easy for me to say that, but to, you know, they have their own personal experiences with it. Right. And so, I don't know. I don't know that it's necessarily that they want to just be upset because nobody just, well, I I mean, maybe there are people that do that. I don't know. (laughs) 
but I think that um, they they have a, an idea of what it is, and and to them it seems scary, and they f- are feeling that we're not acknowledging that or we're overlooking that, and it's almost mm-hmm. like almost like a panic and like you guys you're not you don't realize what you're doing and and yet it's actually often the other way around and but we don't you know so i don't want to um i don't want to disc discard any opinions or fears that people have in that way but there's also i think (laughs) i don't know if you've heard i know i've said this i think before but there's a saying that you know meet me in the middle says the unjust man you take a step toward him he takes a step back meet me in the middle says the unjust man and so in a sense what that's saying is that i want you to concede something and meet me in the middle and i'll concede but when you take that step forward they don't concede and i'm not saying that you know every individual out that's saying not in my backyard or that doesn't understand the project. That's not typically what they're saying. Um, but it kind of feels like that oftentimes. There's mm. another there's another saying, I think, have you ever heard of Karl Popper? He was Australian. Um, I don't okay. remember what his role was, but he said, um, he was talking about tolerance and he said, unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend this is going to be a lot of words using tolerance, mm-hmm. and I apologize. Mm-hmm. If we extend unlimited tolerance, even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. And he said, mm. uh, in this formulation, um, for instance, he does not imply that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies, meaning you know we shouldn't always... Just We don't need to just tell people quiet because they're being intolerant. As long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would certainly be unwise. But we should claim the right to suppress them if necessary, even by force, for it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument because it is deceptive and teach them to answer arguments by use of their fists or pistols. And that what he's essentially saying there is if we there are, there are people who I have met along this journey, especially the last few years, who feel and I know that this is the feeling from some of our city councilors because I've heard them say this that people should be allowed to voice their opinion and we should have to listen. And I don't disagree with that in a sense. Um, because I think that if we can come to a place of communication and mm-hmm. we can all sit and listen and be open-minded that, that it would never, again, like Karl Popper, I think that, uh, it would be unwise to, um, suppress intolerant philosophies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if we are able to, um, talk rationally and keep them in right. check by public opinion. Right. But to be completely tolerant of the intolerant eliminates the tolerance eventually. Yes. And so I cannot just listen for the sake of listening. And what I think happened at the town hall is that 
Um, a lot of people are misinformed and misunderstanding about yep. what's happening in our community. Um, I think that uh, I've heard people say we don't even have housing here for the people who do live here. I And I think that's the point. The person that said that at the town hall was so close to the point that she could have tripped on it. Um, mm -hmm. But they're deluding themselves if they think that we are working with people um, who live, well, I think they're deluding themselves if they think we're working with people who live in other communities. We we serve Brookings. We're here. The people we serve live here. We're not bringing in people from outside the community. That's not right. what's going to happen here. Um, they're, they're right. There is a difference between transient and homeless. Uh, transient is a person who passes through for a short time, um, migrant workers, visitors, traveling nurses even. And that's why for the sake of defining transient occupancy tax, the city of Brookings definition states a transient is any individual who exercises occupancy or is entitled to occupancy in a hotel for a period of 30 calendar days. Um, and they're saying these are people who are passing through. That's that's how they define right. a transient in right. the Brookings Code. So by stark contrast, a person who is homeless is a person who has no permanent residence as a result of poverty. There is also the term displaced person, which we definitely heard a lot of after the fires. Um, exactly. Technically, most people who don't have permanent housing as a result of poverty started as a displaced person because mm. they lost housing as a result of a, you know, usually a traumatic event. Right. But um, I think, yeah. <laughs> so, so when you're when you're looking at this in general, what what kinds of resources is this project bringing to the community? Um, because that was another big theme. Was, right, oh, it we was. We don't have enough resources here. It's interesting to hear so many people suddenly worried about our services here. Um, oh. I want to assure people that, you know, if anybody knows the limits or range of services in Brookings, it's definitely us and those of us providing services. You know, that's our job. As mm -hmm. community health workers, we're charged with finding every possible resource that will benefit the people we serve. You know, we know mental health very well. We know the medical system better than most and are often asked mm -hmm. by our own families and friends for assistance, you know, navigating it. Mm -hmm. um, I, in my mind, I liken it to water where we're these, we are these streams navigating these pathways in the system and, and following them until we find our destination. And filling in all the cracks along the way and replenishing life as often as we can. And so we're not going to stop until we find the way. And um, if something comes up, we find a way around it. And so as far as uh, what we are searching for, we know that there will be specific services needed by the individuals that come into the housing. Um, one of the best things to come from the pandemic, something we were told that we would never get is remote providers. You know, this mm -hmm. means mental health, medical addictions, and even case management and assessment. So, yep. um, you know, services and housing and assisted living and DHS, uh, so many of these services went online. And I think prior to 2020, these were kind of a pipe dream for most of us. We were told they couldn't happen. So, you know, rest assured, this is definitely leading to better outcomes, um, kind of. 
we have plans to bring in our own resources to the project by contracting with providers around the state. Um, we already work with many of these providers in a more, you know, kind of an informal way through case management. So for people who are thinking that the project will use up what resources we have, you know, those resources are stretched because we don't have housing and specifically the type of housing this project will bring. So the biggest resource we're going to bring is housing. Um, and the second biggest is a central a central location for, you know, these services to be able to understand and know where the people that they're serving are and um, how they can leverage what they have to give to the people. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of complicated to explain in that way, but if DHS, you know, has an individual that is, they know that they could get them into something, but it could take a few weeks and we're working with them and they meet the criteria and we're able to bring them in, you know, DHS knows where they're at. And so they know when they can do a home visit, they know when they can bring resources and, and supplies over to that person. And so this benefits the resources we already have and creates additional pathways for resources to flourish. You know, we're talking. And there about, are mm -hmm. literally millions of dollars that are coming in yes. that are associated with this project. And they're coming into Curry County. They're coming here to our community. And they'll continue coming. And we're going to, yes. this is a pathway to bring more resources yes. into the community yes. on an ongoing exactly. basis. And yes, housing is a problem. Yes, housing is a problem. And it's a problem on so many different layers. But I guarantee you that one of the layers that is not being dealt with is turning rentals into short-term vacation rentals. Right. So seriously, if our community wants there to be more housing for the citizens of Brookings, you need to talk to your planning commission and your city council and tell them to stop with the conditional use permits that turn everything into short-term vacation rentals. I mean, right. that's one easy solution. So yeah. we're, we're almost out of time. Are we? Um, I know, I know. It just makes me so sad. Um, so, yeah, I think... I think what we're going to have to do is quickly talk about how leadership and the community yeah. can support this project. Because there's so much we there's so I much know, to always honey, go over. It's I know, never ending. Yes, <laughs> I know. Well, I think leadership. The end. This is this will probably be fairly quickly. Um, leadership. What our our view is that leadership can talk about the facts of this program. They can also talk positively about groups of people that are typically in need of housing, you know, talk positively about seniors, people with disabilities, people who have serious trauma and may struggle with addiction or mental health. Right. Um, you know, I don't hear, I don't hear leadership talk positively about these groups of people. And so that's one way to kind of lead by example and right. to make sure that you're spreading facts about programs instead of misinformation or fear. And for individuals, you know, most people have specific ways they can support, and that's exactly the best way. So Good. if you're Good. already involved, great. Um, whether you're already involved or just starting, it's always supportive to learn about the issues, and you can do that in a lot of ways. You know, you can read and listen to material that's 
presented by advocacy groups, and you can reach out to us for more local information for sure. How do they get to you? So you can contact us through our, we have multiple channels. So we have phone, which is 541-251-0825. And I think that there's um, an extension where you can reach administrative, which is myself and one other. And then you can reach us by email, um, contact, C-O-N-T-A-C-T at brookingscoreresponse.org. Um, or you can reach out to us on Facebook or let me think. There's so many different ways. Yeah, to, I know. <laughs> you can go to our website at brookingscoreresponse.org. There's ways to contact us on there and um, list for our extensions. So, you know. Excellent. Every Excellent. which way. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I think we're just about out of time, Diana. Mm-hmm. I, I have to wrap this up <laughs> as much as I don't want to. Um, I did mention on the last show that I was going to try and uh, get Julie Relford from the uh, Chitco Public yeah. Library to come on the show. Well, she has to talk to her board first, and evidently their board doesn't get together for another couple of weeks. So, you know, we're, we're a couple of weeks out. Um, but well, I think soon. We, we do need to have that conversation given what our city council and the Brook, the uh, board of commissioners. Right, I to did. Think is, yeah, the board of commissioners one. Yeah, they, I mean, they think it's perfectly okay. Absolutely, take away my Second Amendment. I mean, my First Amendment rights, but make sure that I don't take away your Second Amendment. Right. I mean, really, free speech. I, you know, well, I enjoyed yeah. shooting that gun earlier. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> maybe we should keep, keep that one around. The gun. But I think that my child should be allowed to read whatever. She wants my children to, do whatever read whatever I they want say, to. So. Right? I mean, that that's my job as a parent. Yes. To say, you know, you you can't read that that bottom row of books. I mean, come right. on. It's not the the job of the library. You know, it, it's it's just interesting to me that the same people who are advocates for the Second Amendment and resist any effort to limit access to object whose only purpose is to kill are also rabid about restricting my child's right to read what she wants to read. I mean, it's just interesting to me that they believe their moral code is the only one that counts. Mm-hmm. I, I just have to tell you guys, you, you've been misinformed. Mm-hmm. Thanks for tuning in. You can catch up on my other conversations with Diana, Lauren Farmer, and Kelly Hansen, to name just a few, on our website, kciw.org, under Programming, our community. This is Candace Michelle for Our Community. Stay safe and be nice to each other.